Hi, and welcome to New Books in Islamic Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Assad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Asma T. Uddin, and we'll be talking about her latest work, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Asma Uddin is a religious liberty lawyer and scholar working for the protection of religious expression for people of all faiths in the U.S. and abroad. She's an expert in American law on church-state relations and international human rights law on religious freedom. Her legal, academic, and policy work focuses on freedom of expression such as religious garb, land use, access to religious materials in prison, rights of parochial schools, religious arbitration, and more. Asma also writes and speaks on issues concerning Muslims and gender. She is the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com, and through it she has organized vigorous debates and conferences that touch on the intersections of gender, politics, and religion. She's a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and is now based out in Washington, D.C. Her book thus represents, in many ways, the culmination of much of her work. In it, Asma looks at how faith in America is being both politicized and secularized, and what repercussions such processes have on the debates about religious freedom and diversity. The book also stands out because it is deeply personal for Asma, who seamlessly weaves her own experiences as a Muslim woman who has received training in the American legal tradition formally, as well as the Islamic tradition informally. It is also rich in scholarly content, but written in such a way where a non-specialist can have access to it as well. Without further ado, I now welcome Asma Uddin to our podcast. Welcome, Asma. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Asad. I'm excited to be here. Well, Asma, as you know, we have a tradition in the Islamic Studies podcast to begin by asking the author a little bit about themselves and their own intellectual development. So you have quite the stellar resume and experience, and many of us, including myself, have been following your work long before this book. So could you treat our listeners to you know, your story in brief? What brings you here? Why this book? And why Religious Liberty? Yeah, so I think um, it was probably a couple years into my corporate law uh, career where I was for the first time in the path to being a lawyer and had to come to a a sort of reckoning about what is it that I want to do with the rest of my life, right? Again, and different people have this reckoning in different parts of their life. Some people actually figure it out before they go to graduate school. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't one of those people. I was, uh, as I've learned recently, that lots of people end up going to law school, largely because they can't really figure out what else to do. Um, so I was one of those people. Like I, I was just like, yeah, I mean, I got a good LSAT score. You get into a good law school. You're like, all right, I guess I'm going to law school. Um, and so for me, that moment really came, uh, as I said, a couple years after I graduated from law school and was practicing commercial litigation and just hated it. And it was very, very clear to me that that was just not a good fit for me, my personality, my interest. And it was just at that moment, finally, where I was like, who am I? What, is, you know, what has motivated me throughout my life? And what is it that I want to dedicate my life to? And the answer was just glaringly obvious to me. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, maybe I should have thought of it before, just thought to ask myself that question before. But, um, and that question, and then the answer was simply religion. Religion has always been something that I've been drawn to uh, intellectually, that I've been drawn to spiritually. Just, it's something that I have a deep interest in. Um, as I write in the book, um, I was the only, you know, middle schooler in my school and possibly any middle school, uh, walking around with Karen Armstrong's The History of God, trying to generate interfaith conversation. 
And then in high school continued, um, actually was trained for something called the heritage panel where it was, you know, I'm thinking back to that now and I'm like, wow, that was like really sort of light years ahead of its time because I, not only did they, did they train us to speak about our own experiences, but also in, on the panel, like as these high schoolers to learn to sort of contend with some of the differences that we might have with other people on that same panel and to do this in front of audiences where we then engage with the audience as well. And I just remember, I just, I just loved that. Um, and then from there, went to college and ended up, as it turns out, getting a third major in religious studies simply because I took too many classes. Um, and then in law school, ended up, you know, writing my law review article on a question um, dealing with religion and law. And and then even when I was doing corp- commercial litigation, uh, found somehow found you know pro bono work that deals with religious liberty. And so when that moment came for me to really kind of think about what is it that motivates me. I'm just like, well, clearly there's a common theme here. Um, and so there's that, that was the intellectual component. And then, as you know, in the book, um, I talk about my father and his influence on my life and the deep sort of um, religiosity and sort of sincere, authentic sort of ties, you know, sort of quest for the divine that um, absolutely animated his life, unfortunately too short life. and you know, it was just a constant example for me growing up. And I think that's where I really kind of came to appreciate religion as a force for good in society. And so both that, that emotional, spiritual, um, very concrete, pragmatic understanding of religion as uh, the inspiration behind so many people's tremendous contribution, almost sacrificial, like in many cases, very sacrificial contribution um, to our community and to our world, that coupled with the intellectual component, uh, I think it just, you know, as I learned, you know, once I started in the space about a decade ago, it's been a decade that I've been working on religious freedom issues. Um, this was what I was meant to be. Um, and so I think somewhere in the, the, the book jacket, it says that this was, I feel like this is my, this is my calling. And, and so I, I, I definitely feel that way. If just with even the sort of most superficial, um, you know, overview of my past, it became very, very obvious to me. This is where I was headed. Well, thank you for sharing that, Asma. So let's let's move on to the the nuts and bolts of the book. The, one of the first cases you discuss is the Murfreesboro case. Uh, Murfreesboro case. Sorry, um, you suggest that the story of this Islamic center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, is emblematic of a larger trend in legal history to declare that Islam is not a religion, as you write in your in the title of your book. So, can you tell us what happened to that Islamic center in the summer of two thousand ten? What was the case? All about, and what did that mean? What what precedent did it set for those who want to use the law to declare Islam as not a religion? Yeah, so that case is less about creating a legal precedent because ultimately, even though the lower court actually ruled against the mosque in this case, which I'll tell you about, um, there was a, a parallel federal court case that was filed by my former law firm, and uh, in which the mosque did ultimately prevail. But there's there's a broader set of implications about what went down. Um, so the story is that the Muslim community of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, was, as is the case, is that you know it's, it's a story that's shared across Muslim communities across uh, in, throughout the United States. That we we come there's like a small group of immigrants, and this is primarily, of course, related to the the immigrant portion of our community. Um, that they first come and settle in small numbers in different uh, cities, and then over time, you know, the the, the community grows. Um, more people are immigrating, more people are moving from different parts of the United States. These families are having children. 
um, et cetera. And so they kind of move from small to maybe a little bit bigger to a little bit bigger. And it's always like this very uh, uncomfortable, not fully satisfactory uh, situation. And, and we do this over time. We start developing as also the financial resources in the community are growing. Um, but it gets to a point that I think, again, many Muslim communities get to a point after years and years of kind of going from one inadequate space to another one where it's just like we have the money, we have the resources, we have the need to build a permanent facility. And that is exactly what happened with the Murfreesboro community. They were just like, we need a facility of our own. These rented spaces just aren't doing it. They aren't enough. And so they set out to build a mosque and and a number of different community facilities on the same property and, you know, applied for a construction permit and the county uh, approved it pretty much pro forma. Um, There's existing laws that help smooth the way for religious, um, religious land use. So houses of worship, um, because I mean, there's been special protections that have been enacted because um, religious institutions tend to have a harder time than secular institutions and getting land use approval for various reasons. One of them being that not, they don't generate revenue. Um, so, you know, so there's these protections in place, all these other houses of worship in Murfreesboro had just gotten the same approval to the same process. Every other house of worship prior to this was a, was a Christian church. Um, and again, according to the usual procedure, the County published in the, in the local newspaper that this, this, you know, application was submitted to us and we have approved it and it should have just been the way it has been with other houses of worship. But in this case, it wasn't, um, people, when they saw that, uh, sort of a small local group of op- opponents to the Muslim community saw that published in the local newspaper and they were just furious. Um, they said, how could the County have done this? Why didn't it give us, it demanded in then a court case that they brought against the County that because Islam is not a religion, it is a dangerous political ideology. Muslims pose Muslims and Islam pose a threat um, to America and to the security of the Murfreesboro uh, community. This was the argument, and therefore they sh- the county was should have given a heightened level, oh, <laughs> a heightened level of um, of notice um, to the, the local citizens. And this, so this is a context in which um, this was a challenge. This was um, the, the the claim first time that I'd heard it in its most explicit form. Again, it was actually said in court over the uh, course of a six-day hearing that Islam is not a religion. It is a dangerous political ideology. Muslims do not get rights to religious freedom under the First Amendment. Um, and essentially put Islam on trial where all kinds of really horrible, vulgar, egregious questions were asked. And the judge just let them be asked. Um, and so that was, uh, the case and I just, I, it was so extreme, but unfortunately what I see is a consistent trend where you see some version of this, right? It doesn't have to be those precise five words. Islam is not a religion, but it's, you know, 43 U S states have proposed anti-Sharia laws and the entire justification for it is that, um, you know, Sharia or the, or Islamic law is, as I understand Islamic law, um, is a political doctrine. So when you say the entire sort of legal, uh, you know, tradition of a religion is political, that's another way of saying essentially the religion itself is primarily or possibly only political. So I trace this, um, 
this theme throughout a number of different areas of religious exercise and point out for the reader what is going on and the fact that uh, by defining Islam as not a religion, the, the purpose behind it is to rob Muslims of religious freedom. Asma, it was very poetic that the call to prayer went off as you were talking about <laughs> uh, all of these things. Um, so, you know, I want to touch upon this this idea that, you know, uh, this new discourse framing Islam as a uh, political doctrine, right, and, and not a religion. And, you know, one, one of the things that you talk about in your book are what you call moral entrepreneurs. And, you know, as an, as an, as an aspiring academic, these are terminologies that I, I find uh, deep interest in. You say that these moral entrepreneurs are perpetuating, perpetuating such a discourse that, quote, successfully nudges the dis- default setting of public debate on Islam further and further to the right. Um, can you talk a little bit about who these moral entrepreneurs are and can you speak to some of their tactics um, and what exactly are they seeking to do? Sure. So, you know, I use the phrase because I was relying on a framework um, by this sociologist, Stanley Cohen, um, and his idea of moral panic. And I, and I and he was using this to explain what's going on. And it's interesting because at least one person who reviewed the manuscript was just like, you know, I don't really like that phrase, moral entrepreneurs, because it kind of makes them seem like they're good people, like they're trying mm. to, you know, protect morality. Um, and, you know, but I was like, that's the framework. And it kind of goes with his ideas of moral panic. And I think in that discussion, it should be pretty clear that what's happening here is that they're sort of setting themselves out uh, to sort of be protectors of some sort of manufactured good against a manufactured evil, um, all for the sake of sort of further stoking this, the sense of panic um, among their target audience, which in this case tends to be sort of America writ large. Um, and so who are these moral entrepreneurs? Some of the most famous ones have been talked about um, by this important report that was put out by the Center for American Progress that I also reference in the book, um, the Fear Inc. report, uh, that talks about the fear industry, the, the millions of dollars that go into perpetuating this industry and making it big business for the people whose job it is to day in and day out perpetuate fear and hatred of Muslims. Um, and it was important for me, I, I believe the context in which I brought this up in the book was, you know, I was talking about this uh, conversation, one of many just like it, uh, where I give a presentation on religious freedom, I explain how the principle should be applied coherently across diverse fact patterns, across diverse religious uh, claims. And somebody inevitably asks either during the talk or afterwards, well, you know, and again, one of the animating sort of reasons for this book is like, well, we're okay with all those other religions, right? And we totally get it. It totally clicks. But Islam, really? What, what about, what about, what about, right? So it's kind of like, well, what about the the violent extremists? What about the people who are going to come over here and try to force our women to wear burqas? That that seems to be a really common <laughs> image. That, I mean, that's yeah. used across the political spectrum, as I as I talk about in various parts of the book, um, this burqa issue. Um, and so, you know, it's just, I talk about it, but, but and I respond to them, like, you, you think that your deep-seated fear is coming from perhaps a rational place because you see all this news and you see these headlines, but I also need you to know that there is a very concerted program. Like it's a very strategic um, dissemination of fear and propagation of fear that you need to be aware of. Because a lot of Americans don't realize that they're being fed this, um, this, this information in a distorted and very strategic manner 
uh, in order for them to uh, sort of build a fear that is almost impenetrable. Um, and so that's why I, I talk about this very concerted process. Um, now I, I'd like to move on to some some very significant uh, legislation, particularly t- two acts. The first being the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and the second being the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. So let's f- speak a little bit to the first one, the RFRA. Uh, can you give a little bit of the context for this act and, sp- and speak a little bit about why it's significant for religious minorities, particularly up until this very day? Sure. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or in the field is referred to as RIFRA, um, came about because our basically our previously robust protections for religious freedom under the Free Exercise Clause of the U.S. Constitution were watered down by this one case in the 90s um, that basically said that in majority of cases um, that the government only has to satisfy a very easy test uh, before it can limit religious freedom. Um, and so there was this major outcry after this case. It was an Employment Division v. Smith case that I talk about dealing with um, Native Americans' use of peyote, um, where Justice Scalia said that such a weakened legal standard um, was necessary because otherwise the you know, religious beliefs might become a law unto themselves, right? So he was sort of predicting the state of chaos that might happen if we keep protecting um, diverse religious beliefs and creating sort of carve outs for them and got accommodations for them in our law. Um, I have to say that he has been proven wrong and I will get to that in a bit. Um, so after that, there was like this pretty much unanimous, uh, outcry across, um, political and activist groups, um, both on the left and the right. And there was like, well, this is just a horrible sort of, um, attack on religious freedom, and we need to, so you can just tell from the name of the act, religious freedom restoration. We need to go back to that standard uh, that previously was available to us under the Free Exercise Clause. Because the Supreme Court has basically gutted the Free Exercise Clause, we have to make it happen through a statute. Um, so it was enacted um, initially for, you know, it was meant to apply across the U.S. There was a case that said, well, you can't really, you're not really in a position to make it applicable to the states. So there was a federal RIFRA. And then after that, um, different states have passed their own. Um, and that was a pretty uncontroversial process up until the last few years, which you might be, or you or your listeners might be familiar with, um, that the Indiana RIFRA became this sort of really hot button issue. Uh, and now pretty much passing RIFRAs um, in any state has become an impossibility because they're being portrayed as ways of protecting religious objections to serving LGBT people. Um, and so prior to this latest sort of iteration of the culture wars, um, RIFRAs were pretty uncontroversial. Um, and in fact, if you, the actual empirical evidence is that RIFRA is that are usually used in the vast majority of cases uh, to protect the rights of religious minorities. And they're not really about um, protecting these con- concern, you know, the refusals of service to LGBT individuals, but because of that framing, it's, like I said, it's become pretty much impossible now for a state to pass RFRA. Um, so the other law that you mentioned is the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, uh, referred to as either RLUPA or RLUPA, I call it RLUPA. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, may, you can imagine it's way too long of a name to actually spell out each time. Um, and so, you know, RLUPA also came from a space understanding that additional statutory protections were needed specifically for houses of worship, which is that land use part, and then institutionalized persons, 
are people in prisons, religious believers in prisons and in mental institutions. Um, and they just realized that, you know, bureaucrats, government bureaucrats are more than happy to, uh, you know, restrict people's right to religious freedom because religion just kind of isn't something that a lot of people are, are interested in protecting uh, in the land use context, again, because of the, the fact that religious institutions don't generate tax revenue, cities just don't like them. They might not really fit like a particular area of the city where someone might want to locate where a church or other house of worship might want to locate because it just kind of doesn't fit with like what they're looking to do in that area. Um, and so there was, you know, lots of testimony that was collected and about the need for this law. And it was passed in the year 2000, which is a year, as you know, before 9-11. And it was interesting because when RLUPA was passed, there wasn't like that much testimony given on, and when the testimony was being heard prior to the passage of the law, um, there wasn't much there uh, about Islam and Muslims and mosques. Like it just wasn't really like on their radar. Um, And then as it turns out, a year after it was passed, the there was like this huge sort of steep, you know, incline in the number of, of mosque cases that came to the government's attention and Department of Justice, you know, worked on under um, using RLUPA. Um, so it's interesting, you know, that that wasn't really on their radar. And so that's a question that I kind of, that a law professor posed and that I posed to the reader and sort of present to the reader in my first chapter, saying what would have happened if, you know, Congress was setting out to pass RLUPA right now, right, at a time when Islam is so deeply despised. Um, and, you know, this other you know, a professor was writing um, in the immediate aftermath of the uh, Part 51 of Ground Zero fiasco. And he was like, you know, I don't think we would have, that RLUPA would have passed, or it definitely would have not passed with wide bipartisan support. Um, because people just would be like, well, if it's going to protect those Muslims, then we're not sure we want, we want this law. Um, and in fact, since then, uh, unfortunately there has been, there continues to be a deeply disproportionate number of RLUPA cases that the DOJ is working on, uh, disproportionate to the number of Muslims uh, in this country. Asma, you draw heavily from the work of the scholar Arun Kanani in describing two forms of Islam as it concerns the way these debates are framed around Muslims in America. The first is the culturalist form, which positions a clash between, quote, Islam and the West and holds that Islam is not a religion. And you you dedicate a bulk of your the first half, I would say, of your book to that or the first portion of your book to that. And then the second form you call the the reformist. Uh, version of Islam, which argues that some kinds of Islam are not a religion, but other kinds are more acceptable. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk more to this latter form and how it how it constructs or reinforces the good Muslim versus bad Muslim dichotomy, and how it contributes to what you describe as the secularization of Islam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, the book when it has this title, "When Islam Is Not a Religion," and it's really kind of looking at that phenomenon through a couple of different lenses. The first, as you know, the entire first part is dedicated to this very explicit version of that, right? Um, this idea that Islam as a whole is is just not worth protecting. And thus the idea that it's not a religion because you have to be religion. I mean, religious freedom is restricted to something that we might think of as a religion. Um, and so there's like this wholesale approach, and I kind of walk the reader through that um, in the first part. 
But then I'm like, you know, when we tend to look at these extreme examples of the phenomenon, that that diverts our attention from the subtler forms, right? And there's a version of Islam that can be stripped of its essential sort of religious elements or the parts that might, you know, that that people might find um, more troublesome, less conforming to uh, our liberal sensibilities, um, etc. And so it's really kind of like we we're okay with Islam, but like a particular type of Islam. And the, maybe the part that doesn't, you know, adhere too closely to some of those traditional elements that we're not, we're less comfortable with. Um, and so that's where, you know, that's the type of discussion that I get into. The, the, when you talk about Qunani's work, that comes up in the first chapter that appears in um, part two, which is the one that's dedicated to national security issues. Um, and I introduced this specifically with, um, you know, I, I talk extensively about the NYPD surveillance program, of which I know, Asad, you are <laughs> way too intimately familiar with. Yes. Um, and um, I mean, that was just a classic case of I did really kind of wanted to start again, presenting to the reader that look at the sort of really obvious incursions into religiosity. Like I wanted to map out for them from the outset that that the what they were looking for in determining whether or not um, somebody was on the path to radicalization were essentially just markers of religiosity and really kind of making this like this case in that first part of, of part two, that um, what the point here really is with religious freedom, right? Like religious freedom is about our ability to practice our faith in public. Um, and, and so that free exercise component is there, but there's also that part of it where the establishment clause comes in, where it says the government shouldn't be sifting through types of believers or types of interpretations of Islam, but that's in fact, exactly what was going on. Um, and so the reformist versus culturalist culturalist is just sort of like, as you said, it's a clash between Islam and the West, whereas reformist says, okay, we're not really, again, we don't have a problem with all Muslims. We just have problems with some Muslims. Um, and this, and I, I then tie this to the secularization of Islam in the next chapter, uh, and the one after that, um, because it's just within our popular culture, I kind of move away for the first time away from government policy, which ultimately religious freedom is about the government. Um, but I kind of step into more of the space of the sociopolitical discourse and, and the types of Islam that is being championed and the types that aren't. Which actually, then in chapter eight, I tie back to religious freedom, which is a government question, um, because some of the really thorny issues right now with respect to religious freedom and sexual freedom, LGBT rights, um, and access to abortion and contraception, you know, make this secularization process um, something that then dis- determines uh, where a lot of Muslims and 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 their allies uh, sort of fall um, in terms of where they're going to. And, and, you know, which side of that equation are they going to fall? They're going to posit that sexual freedom is should trump religious freedom or the other way around. It's a very interesting point you bring up. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of that, um, especially in, in contemporary discourse with regard, you know, in response to the Trump administration and, and its policies. Right. This idea that Muslim practices and symbols are political statements, um, the hijab or for less less more pronounced for a Muslim men, you know, growing the beard. Etc. And I'm wondering, you know, if that also plays into politicizing Islam inadvertently, um, and if that reinforces sort of the rhetoric coming from the other end. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that it's inadvertent. Like, it just seems. I mean, I, I'm not saying that everyone who does this has thought through all the political implications. Right. 
Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, I think right now the hijab is a symbol of rebellion against Trump in many cases. And as I quote in the book, there are people making statements very publicly that they wear the headscarf, um, as a political symbol. Um, in some cases, both religious and political, other people are just like, this is a political symbol. Um, and so, and what, what type, what does it symbolize? It symbolizes essentially, um, you know, anti-power, anti-whiteness. Um, and so it necessarily what the way that it's framed, the political message that's being sent is necessarily sort of on one part of the political spectrum and then seen by the other side as anti-it, right? So if it's aligned very closely with sort of democratic, liberal um, talking points, and then the right sees that as sort of anti-right, right, anti-conservative. Now you're making the statement that um, that implicates sort of your religion in a way that further justifies um, our animosity toward you. And that's something that I, I, I begin to delve into um, in chapter eight. I actually, it's the, the focus of a lot of my um, upcoming work um, that this idea that the culture war, right? And we know that America is polarized today in ways that it probably hasn't been in our lifetime. Um, and the way that it's divided specifically between the right and the left, and there's just so much demonization that happens on both sides. Many people aren't really voting for a particular thing. I'm sure you've read this in many different places. They're voting against the other side. That That's the bigger motivating factor than right. actually being for something. And I actually think that the Muslim question is very much tied up into that. And I know that conservative animosity toward Muslims and Islam is complicated and there's lots of different factors that go into it, but I absolutely believe that the the very public alliance between our major civic organizations with the left um, feeds into that. I mean, it's just like, I, you know, I, I say in the book, like the friends, it's sort of the friends of your enemy are also your enemy. And that's exactly how Muslims are looked at. And once it kind of came to this realization and I it just sort of I saw it everywhere. Like you see it all over social media. You see it just in so much uh, like articles online. You see it in conversations with, with conservatives. Like there's definitely this phenomenon of like the left and Muslims are just sort of in cahoots, and, <laughs> you know. And it's just like it's the, the left is trying to to minimize the Christian character of this country. And it's not just that. It won't just stop there. It actually wants to replace it with something, and it's trying to replace it with, you know, this vision of diversity, but also by, by uplifting Muslims, there's kind of replace it with Muslims or Muslim values or the Islamization of America. <laughs> Suddenly, Pamela Geller's like, you know, nonprofit's name, like, how, you know, I, I just started thinking, you know, which is called Stop the Islamization of America. I started understanding the deeper, like the, the deeper sort of layers there that she's tapping into. Well, thank you for this, Asma. As a final question to close off as a you know, treat to our listeners, we'd like to talk a little bit about what you're working on you know, uh, for the future. And you mentioned some little bit about your upcoming work. Can you share a little bit with us, um, you know, what we can look forward to hearing from you uh, with regards to your work? Yeah, so this um, this new area of inquiry is something that I will be pursuing through a project at the Aspen Institute based in Washington, D.C., um, where I'm actually going to be... So, I mean, what I'm interested in is not just the um, how the culture war plays into conservative Christian Muslim uh, hostility, sort of like that, that disconnect that happens in that particular niche, um, and even more specifically between evangelical Christians and Muslims, 
Um, but I'm also trying to figure out like how to solve that problem. <laughs> like how do we, so we've identified this and I want to, I want to sort of explore that in greater depth about what exactly is that problem. But then I want to, I want to take the next step, but just like, how do you begin to, you know, bridge build in that context? Um, and I think religious liberty gives us so many of the tools that we need to be able to get past that. Um, and so my project is called The Politics of Vulnerability and the Threat to Religion and Religious Freedom. And God willing, there will also be uh, a second book coming that will basically sort of capture all that research and all the different sort of findings um, that I come to through these various convenings at the Aspen Institute. Well, there you have it, folks. When Islam is not a religion, inside America's fight for religious freedom by Asma T. Uddin. Thank you, Asma, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. 